If you have a Bible with you, I would ask that you turn it to Romans chapter 4. Very soon we'll be reading verses 13 through 25. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, you can find Romans chapter 4 in the pew in front of you in that little pocket. You'll find a black Bible and Romans chapter 4 will be on page 885 of that Bible. Oftentimes in literature and in movies, we have the idea given to us that some folks, mostly the main characters of of importance, have their entire identity, or the majority of it at least, given to them by one pivotal moment in their life, one thing that changes them either for the good or for ill. It is the moment that defines them, that shapes their future and explains their reality. Harry Potter had this happen to him when he was yet a baby. Michael Corleone had it happen to him in a vacated diner. Captain Ahab, while he was out on a fishing expedition, Edmund Dante and the betrayal of his friends. This probably works really well for fiction. It gives a very concrete reason for the character and the purpose of his life or her life. I doubt it works very well for many characters and figures in real life. There are pivotal moments in our lives, certainly. Perhaps for you, it was when you graduated high school or college, when you married or had kids or bought your first home. For others, maybe it's, it's bad decisions that they've made or the loss of a loved one. There are pivotal moments in our lives that are seminal and important, and they do form and fashion us in a certain way. But in all likelihood, you are vastly more complicated than that. One moment does not define who you are. These one moment might have had a greater impact on your trajectory than other moments, but your trajectory in life, your attitude and your response to things in life are probably impacted more by the millions of other small and reasonably everyday decisions that you make, routine decisions that add up over time. We've discussed so far in the book of Romans, and especially in Romans chapter 4, a great moment for Abraham A seminal moment for Abraham when God took him out of his tent and told him to cast his eyes up at the very stars that he has made and gave him a promise that so will your offspring be. And Abraham believed him. We read that it was counted to him. That belief, that faith was counted to him as righteousness. But as we read on, especially in the text that we get today, I think that it is wrong to think of this moment of faith as simply a moment of faith, a brief response to this initial promise of God that Abraham then left behind and charged on with the rest of his life. Rather, it is a seminal moment, but that seminal moment that led to millions of small and faithful decisions from Abraham, it was not a moment of faith, but a lifelong faith that Abraham lived. It was not simply a momentary decision, but a decision in the moment that would be carried through all parts of his life both in the good and the bad, both in the high and the low. As we turn to Romans 4, 13 through 25, and we talk about what prompted Abraham's faith, what kind of faith it was, what we should be taking away from these important passages in Genesis. Let us read the word of our God from Romans chapter 4, where Paul writes this. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be the heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For, it is the, for if it is the inheritance of the law who are to be heirs, faith is null, and the promise 
is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares in the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all, as it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. In the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist, in hope he believed against hope, that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. This is the inerrant, infallible, and precious word of our God. As we consider these verses, I want to first talk to you about the nature of the promise the nature of the promise that God has made to Abraham. The first thing that Paul mentions is that this promise didn't come through the law. He says, if the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, it did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Think of it this way. It's almost as if you were kind of in a public space, but you're trying to have a conversation that only regards one other person. And there are other people who are mingling around, and maybe they want to talk to you as well. But really, the conversation that you are trying to have is just between you and this other person. And somebody is waiting in the wings, perhaps to ask you a question, perhaps to talk to the other person. But they are not truly part of the conversation. This is what Paul is saying is happening in Genesis 12 and in Genesis 15. The passages that we are considering, when Abraham is being given these promises and responding in faith, he's saying the promise and his response in faith are in conversation with one another. They are the things being considered here. The law is not being considered circumcision is not being considered. It's a third wheel. It might be waiting in the wings to say something, and it might be an important thing that it's going to say, but it's not actually part of this conversation. The promise was given, and the response in faith was all that was truly needed. Truth be told, though, in that same situation, the further you got away from the two people having the conversation, even the third person waiting in the wings, the further away you got, the more you might believe that all three of them are in conversation together. As we pull back away from, Romans, or from Genesis 12 and 15, we can start to think that the law, which comes up very quickly, is a conversation partner with these two. As we consider the Pentateuch as a whole, or then the Old Testament as a whole, we might think that the law is actually in conversation with faith and with the promise, in order to have all three of them talking with one another, working each other out. Paul goes on to then say, but if, if the conversation about promise and faith concerned the law as well, the law would make both the promise and faith null and void. What role could they possibly play? How could the promise truly be promise 
if it was conditional upon our response? What role would faith have to play if God needed us to do things? Paul says it would have no place at all. Their conversation would be overwhelmed by the law. This is what Paul gets around to when he says the promise rests on grace and is guaranteed to all his offspring in verse 16. We need to remember that God's promises are not like ours. Even the best intention promised by us. All parties know that when somebody makes a promise to you, that there are a number of conditions that come along with it, even implicitly, that we understand as human beings are just there. There's so much a part of the fabric of reality that we don't even mention them when we make promises. And it's not just because we're sinful and fallen. That's part of it. It's, it's not just because we sometimes decide to not keep our word. But it's also just because we're just finite. We're limited. We're not in control of other situations. We're not in control of other things that happen around us. If I were to promise my children that after this service, we're going to go out and eat. I said, hey, I know, I know you don't want to go home and just eat soup. We're going to go out and eat. I promise you we're going to go out and eat after this, which I'm not doing. If, if I did do that, you're going to eat soup and you're going to like it. But if I did do that, I'm not going to promise that you're going to like it. But if I did do that, there are a number of things that could happen that would keep us from going out to eat that they would not blame on me failing to keep my promise for. Like, for instance, if I had an aneurysm and died. I don't think that they would go to my funeral and be like, if he had only kept his promise. Right? There's a number of things that could happen. I, my, our cars could both simultaneously fail. We could leave here and say, hey, we're going to go eat at this place. We, my wife and I, I, I was remembering that this week. This happened to us. We, we left church in Oak Ridge one time when I pastored down there. We said, hey, let's go eat at Applebee's. By the time we got to Applebee's, we found out that it had burned down that morning, right? These things happen. They're completely and utterly out of our control. We could have a pipe burst at our house or someone here might need my assistance in something. Any of a number of things could happen that would keep me from fulfilling that promise. We could keep coming up with ways in which that promise could be thwarted. But God's promises are not like ours. We're limited because we're finite, because we can't see everything, we can't control everything, we don't know the future. But He is not like that. He is not finite, but He is infinite. He can see all of the possible contingencies, He sees every occurrence that's coming down to threaten His promise. And given His sovereign control over space and time, given that he knows the beginning from the end, and he declares what is to be even before it occurs. His promises have no obstacles that he has not already dealt with. This is what Paul means when he says, therefore it's guaranteed. If it was contingent upon the law, it could not possibly be a promise, and it certainly couldn't be guaranteed. Paul says it's not that way. It can't be based on the law, and it can't be based on any sort of condition or or contingency that he might place upon us. The promise is the promise, wholly because it is God-given, God-ordained. It is his word, and he will always be faithful to make it go through. One of the functions of the law, then, is to clarify the nature of the grace of the promise. God made it as a promise because we could not fulfill his demands. There is nothing here for us to fail in. At the end of verse 15, or in verse 15, where he says, for the law brings wrath, what he means is you're always going to fail in the law. If it was contingent, you would always fail. This is stuff we've covered. But then he says this, 
but where there is no law, there is no transgression. Now, what he doesn't say there, and the way you should not read that, is where there is no law, there is no sin. We're going to talk about the difference between the two, especially in just one chapter over. But what he says here is where there is no law, there is no transgression. If God doesn't give you a word, then you can't break that word. If God doesn't give you a command, then there's no way to break the command. There is nothing here to transgress. God simply looks at Abraham and says, I'm going to do this. How can Abraham transgress that? There's nothing for Abraham to do. There's nothing for him to do that God says don't do. There's nothing for him to not do that God says to do. There's no transgression. There's no condition placed upon Abraham that will make this promise either come true or not come true. There's nothing to stop the promise from coming true. Therefore, it is guaranteed to be true by the very word of God. It is God's promise alone. It doesn't rest upon us at all on what we might or might not do. So our faith is the only right response. The only right response is to simply trust in the word that he has given to us. It isn't to do anything. Faith is the most passive of all the things. We're simply trusting that God will do that. We are to trust that it is indeed true. And that brings us up then to what kind of trust is that? What is the nature of faith? So the second point is the nature of faith. The nature of the promise is that it's all upon God, and God doesn't give us any contingencies, doesn't give us any commands. What is the nature of faith? Four things speak of Abraham's faith in this passage, which should also mark our faith. First, Abraham's faith is a radical faith. It is a radical faith. It is, it is interesting as you read through Genesis, although the chapters seem to clip by fairly quickly, God seems to lead Abraham on for a really long time before he kind of gets to the punchline of bringing Isaac to him and Sarah. He just lets him linger. He calls him initially when he's 40, and the promise to be the father of many nations implies pretty strongly that he's going to have kids. That's what we mean by father. And God calls him when he's 40. And yet years go by, decades go by, and God does not fulfill his promise. By the time we get to Genesis 15, it's clear that Abraham has at least anxiety, if not fear in him, that this isn't going to happen. Why delay and make yourself, if you're in God's shoes, why would you delay and make yourself seem unfaithful? Or make Abraham seem foolish? Make his belief seem stupid in the world that he was going to have these kids when it's just not going to happen? Well, like everything God does, it is an incredibly purposeful thing. Friends, you need to understand, God doesn't come alongside those who try really hard. He, he, doesn't, he doesn't help those who help themselves. That is what the world says. That is not what Scripture says. God isn't there simply to help you kind of achieve your own goals. He's not there. He doesn't call Abraham and say, listen, what I'm going to do is I'm going to see if you and Sarah can try and try and try, and if it doesn't work out in the end, then I'm going to help you out. God knew precisely what was going on. Many people in this world treat God as though he's some sort of safety net. And life is nothing but walking on a tightrope in between a great chasm which leads to our death. And you walk as far as you can. You do the best job you can. You, you use the Holy Spirit as a pole to balance you. And you have Jesus underneath and your faith in Jesus as a safety net so that when you fall, 
God will catch you. The fact is that faith is not a safety net. That you're not traversing that tightrope on your own. By making Abraham wait for the promise, by making him see the futility in his own efforts, even by giving him Ishmael and then denying Ishmael, God is looking at him. He's showing him the canyon and saying, you see, there's no safety net. And then he seems to reach down and literally cut the line out and says, now, walk. Abraham looked at his body. He said, it's, it's as good as dead. I don't know if there's anyone in here approaching 100. Maybe you take offense at this. But he's almost 100 years old by the time that God gives him the fulfillment of this promise. And he looks at his body, whether or not he considered his body dead, at the very least what Paul means by this, is as far as his body was concerned in producing children, it wasn't going to happen. He knew that. Abraham looked at his body. It wasn't like when he first got called and he's 40 and he thinks he's in the prime of life, or even when he's 60 or 70 and he thinks this might still happen. He was past the point. He knew that he was never going to produce a child naturally and normally. And Sarah, oh, Sarah was even worse. Having been barren her whole life, the likelihood that she was going to bear a child, even in the prime of life, was very small. And now, as a double curse, not only was she barren her whole life, but she's past childbearing age. They were both, as far as this particular work goes, as good as dead. Isaiah has his beautiful section of scripture where he says, you want to, Israel, look back to Abraham and Sarah, the rocks from which you were hewn. Now, that's a beautiful way of putting it because of two things. First, it talks about how Abraham and Sarah were literally the foundation. They were the the building blocks of all of Israel. They were the thing that all of Israel stood on. But it also implies the kind of thing that God did there. He brought children for Abraham out of stone. He, he made life where there was no life. When you read in verse 19, he did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. You'll notice in the ESV, at least, there's a footnote there under barrenness. It actually is the word dead. We don't talk about wombs being dead. Greeks didn't either. Paul's pushing the point. Her womb was nothing but a, an empty tomb. It was nothing but rock. There was no life coming from it. Abraham was led here so that he would know beyond any hope, this is nothing that you can do. This is not a chasm that you're going to cross. This is not a tightrope that you're going to walk on. It is all by the grace of God. It has to be an incredibly radical faith. When you come to the New Testament, realize that when we read of these Pharisees, It's not that they didn't have faith. It's not that they didn't have faith. They believed much about the law, about the promises that God had made, about their rewards, and about even the God who was going to give them to them. The problem was their faith wasn't radical enough. Their faith was a faith that thought that they could achieve what they needed to and God would simply help them with the rest. It wasn't a radical faith, but it was a faith of emergency assistance. It was, God, we will call you if we need you. Paul is saying, no, Abraham knew all he had was Christ. All he had was God. That was his faith. 
The reason why it is a radical faith is, secondly, it was a realistic faith. It was a realistic faith. Part of this radical bit is the fact that he understands that there is absolutely nothing that he can do. His body was dead. He didn't look at himself and look at Sarah and say, yeah, it's unlikely, but it could probably happen. He, he looks at them and he says, there's no way. This is why Isaac means he laughs. Both of them laugh. This is a ridiculous thing to say to us. It's ridiculous to think that we could bring forward a child. He's realistic about his options. He's not just puffed up with optimism. He's not puffed up with self-confidence. He doesn't think rather blandly that this is all just going to work out somehow. His faith is based solely on the fact that he absolutely and without a doubt cannot do anything to bring about this promise. And that is indeed the point. That is why the text says he hoped against hope. There was no worldly hope for him. This was not a faith that just looked at all the obstacles that he had and said, I can probably do this anyway. I can probably make this happen. I just need to be, be working really hard at it, whatever that might mean. Right? Too many times when people talk about faith, when people talk about, about doing the things that the Bible calls upon them to do, they, they talk about faith as though they can do stuff that will make God happy, that they can do the things that makes God smile, that they can bring about the blessings and the grace of God upon their lives. Abraham had no optimism in such things. God doesn't give Abraham that out. He doesn't allow him to be optimistic at all about his opportunity or his chances to actually do what is being required. He allows Abraham's optimism over decades to dry out so that his faith would rest on God alone because Abraham is realistic about what he can do. It is not just a realistic faith, though. It is a particular faith. It's a particular faith. It's not a general faith. I hate when people talk about somebody being a man of faith. He's a man of faith. Typically, it just means that he believes in something beyond trees and wood and rock. We're not called to be people of faith. Abraham didn't believe in something vague and general. He didn't, he didn't believe just to believe. He believed in something very specific. It's not an abstract faith for him. It's a very well-defined faith. He believes in a particular God who will do a particular thing. Realize that Abraham wasn't given a child just because he wanted a child. He wasn't given a child because he went to God and he says, you know, God, I'm, I'm a pretty happy guy. You've given me a lot of stuff, but what I could really do to kind of round the whole thing off is, is to give me a child. If you would do that, that's, that would be great. And God says, well, you know, you kind of believe that I would. Perfect. We can, we can make that happen. Why was this an issue at all? It wasn't an issue because Abraham wanted it first. It was an issue because God promised it first. Before we ever hear of Abraham asking God for a child, God comes to him and promises him one. And before Abraham was ever born, before we ever read of the word Abram or Abraham in Scripture, we are promised a seed that will crush the head of the serpent. Child was always there. What Abraham believes in is not just belief in general. He doesn't just have faith. He has faith in a particular God who has made a particular promise to him. 
Friends, we, we need to do the same. Don't just trust that God is going to give us nice things in the world. Don't just trust that God is going to help us out in general, but trust in the very things that he has promised to give to us. Have a very narrow and particular faith in what God will do for you. Abraham had a particular faith. But lastly, he also had a powerful faith. Amazingly, Paul writes in verse 20, No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith. That's a very strange thing. We think that it would be backwards. As the decades went on, you would think that his faith in God would waver. You would think that that he would start to say, I don't know, God, I mean, it's been a while. You made this promise to me when I was 40 that I was going to have this, and I just, I'm not, it's not happening. We tend to think that the consideration of his powerlessness, of his inability to do Anything to help the promise come about would actually make his faith weaker rather than stronger. But Paul says precisely the opposite is the case. His weakness allows his faith to flourish. His weakness makes his faith strong. Listen, if he had considered himself strong, if he had considered himself able to do these things, he quickly learned that he has failed miserably. Both he and his and Sarah's bodies were just not equipped to produce children. God made it that way. His great confidence, whether it's in his body, in his ability, in the possibilities that this world affords, any confidence that Abraham might have had would have been swallowed up by reality and he would have been crushed by it. But the text says when he considered who God was, that he is the creator of all things in heaven and on earth and under the earth, that he was able to bring life from the dead and call into existence the things that are not, when he believed in that God, then his faith didn't waver. Paul says that God is one who brings life to the dead. This is reference at least somewhat to the birth of Isaac. The birth of Isaac might be the first reference to an actual resurrection in Scripture that we have, which seems odd because he's not actually alive, so it doesn't seem like he could be dead. But the clear implication of many texts is that this birth is like the resurrection that we have from the dead, that God brings into existence from nothing something, that God brings into existence from the dead that which lives. That is the very birth of Isaac. But it's not, again, just a momentary thing. Abraham knew, because he was brought forward from two dead people, that God could give Isaac life from the dead. So in Genesis 22, when Abraham is called to kill his only son, he's told, go up to Mount Moriah and kill your son, your only son, your beloved son. He's not just killing his son, thinking, well, if God gave me a son once, he can give me another son. He's not just killing his son, he's killing the promised son, Isaac. There is no other son to be given to him. When he puts that knife into him, he is not just killing his son, he is killing the promise of God. But we read in Hebrews, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promise was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Abraham considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, which 
Hebrews goes on to say, figuratively speaking, he did. Abraham was willing to kill his son because he had faith in God. If God is calling me to lay a knife into my son, my son will get back up. He believed that this was a God who gives life to the dead. He believes that this is a God who calls into existence the things that are not. Whether the stars that he looked up at and was supposed to count as though that was the number of offspring that he would have, or the very earth that he stood on, Abraham knew that this was the God who called all these things into existence by the barren word. There was nothing there. There was absolutely nothing in existence. It's impossible for us to even imagine what that is like. There is no space. There is no time. There is no matter. And God simply speaks and things come into place. If God can create life from nothing, then an empty womb shouldn't be a problem. And so he grew strong in his faith. He grew strong. The more he considered the God that he served, the more he saw God in action around him, the stronger his faith grew. It didn't matter that he was weak. It didn't matter that he was inept at this particular thing. It didn't matter that his work and his effort would be meaningless in all of this because he knew that God could do it. Because it was only God always ever. And the text says that he gave glory to God through this. This is a glorious thing for God's people to realize that God will do what only God can do and we offer him nothing in our salvation. It is glorious to him to know that we rest fully and totally in him. That he is the only one who is able to accomplish what he has stated will be accomplished. That he is the only one strong enough to bring about the reality that he desires to have. That kind of faith glorifies God. It is in our weakness that we are made strong. Paul, as well as anyone, understood this. The thorn, whatever that might be in his flesh, three times he prays that it should leave him. But God says to him, my grace is sufficient. My power is made perfect in weakness. The weaker you are, Paul, the more my power shines. Therefore, Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so the power of Christ may rest upon me. Abraham's faith was powerful, not because he was powerful, but because he realized how weak he truly was. And therefore, all he could ever rest on was God. That is the nature of faith. It is a faith that is radical. It is a faith that is realistic. It is a faith that is particular and a faith that is powerful. That brings us lastly to the nature of revelation. The nature of revelation. Paul ends our passage in verse 23 and 24 saying, The words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone. Indeed, one might want to go back to Paul and say, well, I understand what you're saying, but it wasn't written for him at all. Abraham was dead by the time that was penned. But what he means there is, God didn't speak words. If Abraham understood that his faith was counted to him as righteousness, which we are rightly to imply from the words of Genesis, that this was something that Abraham knew of and was found to be true. That the recording of that fact was not for Abraham. It wasn't even for Moses, Paul says. But it was written for us. It is given to us by God for us. And I mean to us quite literally, to those who are in this room today. It was not given to them in the first century. It was not simply given to them in the 18th century BC. It was given to us. The Holy Spirit has kept these words. He has 
provided them for us and has sealed them and has walked them through history so that we could read them and be encouraged in our faith by these words. He kept them through the ups and downs in Israel. He kept them through the exile. He kept them through the oppression of Rome and through the dark and tumultuous first days of the church and he kept them for you to read today. We might rightly say that people hear the word of God in many ways. We're right, our God still speaks. I remember being at a very liberal church where they used that to justify all kinds of weird stuff. But we don't believe the antithesis of that. Just because they believed all kinds of weird stuff, we shouldn't say, well, no, our God doesn't speak anymore, because that's clearly not the case. Every time you ask the Spirit for wisdom, you are asking for God to communicate to you how you ought to live, walk, and act. Some might believe that they have at times heard the very voice of God. Others believe they know of his leading and conviction in their lives. Some might claim that God speaks to them through dreams and visions. Others, that he can lead people by the work of his spirit among a group of people, even in the church. To which, fair enough, more or less, I don't mind any of those things. Some of you have different opinions on that. But one thing that we all ought to agree on Absolutely none of these things is more clear, evident, perfect, or central than the word of God as it is written. Any word that God might give you that is particular for you, particular for your time, for your station, for where you are in life, for your group of friends, or for your church, is not as important as the word that God has spoken to be centered all time and given to all of his people. That word is central. That word is the necessary word that we have. It is sufficient for all that we need. And that word speaks of one clear reality. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the promises of the Old Testament. Jesus Christ is the center of everything that has happened in Scripture. Jesus Christ is not only the promised seed of Genesis 3, he is the fulfillment of the promise. He is the seed of Abraham that has come to make the promises of God come true for all of Abraham's children. Through his word, God tells us that this is what you need to know, that your righteousness, that your justification comes only through faith and trust in Jesus Christ. We must believe on him who raised Jesus from the dead. The entirety of scripture is pointing to that reality. It is the breadcrumbs that God has left us throughout the Old Testament that we might track it back to Jesus. Whether it's Abraham's faith, the redemption that we have in Egypt, the giving of the law, the work of the judges, the faith of people like Ruth and David, the rise and the fall of the kings, the exile itself, all of them scream that Jesus Christ has died for our sins and has been raised for our justification. Paul says that he was delivered for our trespasses. Whether in Adam or if you were a Jew through the law of Moses, you have failed to do what God has called you to do, and there is a penalty for that. That penalty is death. The penalty to deny God is nothing but death because you cannot live under God and deny him. Jesus was given over to death for our trespasses. The penalty was paid mercifully and fully by him. Listen, this is no different than Abraham's faith. It has a different context because we have the fulfillment of it. But Abraham had to believe that the promises that God had had made to him would be true, even if he had to raise someone from the dead to accomplish them. He just didn't know how true that statement was. 
I think people sometimes fret over the truthfulness of it. Maybe as a Christian you've thought, how do I know that Jesus really died for my sins? Like, plenty of people knew that he died. History is replete with references to this Jesus of Nazareth or Jesus from Palestine, someone who was a criminal according to Rome and who was, who was killed. We know that these things happen. How do we know that he died for our sins? When you purchase almost anything, you're always at least offered a receipt. Typically, when you buy something small, the only reason to keep a receipt is if you're going to track every single purchase that you make. For most of us now, we use cards, so there's not a lot of reason to have a receipt for things like that. If you buy a burrito, you bought a burrito. No one's going to question whether it's your burrito or not. When you buy something a little bit more important, if you're going to buy a new appliance, the receipt becomes a little bit more important because if you need to return it, they need to know that that is indeed yours. And when it becomes even more important, the state actually makes you have a receipt. If you buy a new car or a new home, they make you get a title for that thing. That title that says, you own this. This is yours. It belongs to you and to no one else. If there is nothing more important than your salvation, if Jesus was right, when he said, listen, it's a really poor deal to gain the world and to lose your soul. If he meant it when he compared the kingdom of God to a field that a man hid a treasure in and he went out and sold everything that he had so that he could buy the field and gain the treasure, it would be a real poor deal for the guy if he sold everything that he had and then somebody said, yeah, but that field's mine. What he needs is a receipt. What you need is a receipt. You need to know that your debt has indeed been paid for. You need to know that all that you owe to God has been canceled. It has been offered to him. It is done and away with. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is that receipt. It is the proof that you're paid up. That the penalty is no more. That every debt that you have had has been nailed to the cross. That Jesus paid it fully. We know this because he has been resurrected from the dead. He's been given life again by the very hand of God. If he has been given life again, that means that he, death no longer has a hold on him. And if he died for you, the only way he can be raised again is if he paid fully for every single thing that you have ever done. The resurrection is the receipt that Jesus Christ has actually done what he has done. And that is why his resurrection is our justification. It shows that our penalty has truly and fully been paid. That we, by faith in Jesus, have indeed all of our debts fulfilled and have nothing more to owe. So God will not declare us guilty. He will not declare us needing to pay penalty for it has already been paid. There is no judgment that hangs over our head, no punishment, no penalty, no concern that God will render a verdict against us. His resurrection is our justification. Friends, I, I want to reiterate to you the point of Paul saying all of this is not simply to talk to us as important as it is about what Jesus has done. That is central. That will always be central. But it is not just that. It is also to get us to walk as Abraham walked. To get us to believe as Abraham believed. The man who could not rely upon his own strength, but on God's. The man who didn't rely simply on a moment's faith, but persisted through the highs and lows of life, showing himself faithful. Who, while not perfect, 
Nevertheless, believe that God could do precisely the very thing that he had said he would do. Let that be your response today. Not just a moment's faith. Today doesn't need to be the day that defines you. I doubt highly that on your deathbed you're going to be like, I remember that sermon. That was the one. That's not what today is about. Today isn't about having that one thing that would ever change your life. That one defining moment, that one defining moment where you respond to the word of God, that one defining moment where you commit yourself to God. If that is today, amen, hallelujah. But that's not truly the point of today. Let today be a moment of faithfulness. Just another instance of you following and trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, Jesus is good to you. is more than worthy of every ounce of trust and respect and worth and honor that you can heap onto him. So build that pattern in your life. Build on moments so that you can have a life of faithfulness, even as Abraham lived a life of faithfulness. Build a pattern of seeking after him. Build a pattern of trusting him. Build a pattern of walking after him so that you too can walk in the footsteps of Abraham and be counted as his children and heirs of the promise. Let's pray. Father, we are a limited people. We are prone to forget as time drags on. This day, no doubt, will soon become like so many others for us. A day that bleeds into the many other days spent at church or at work or at home. Even so, we ask that you would press upon us the importance of this day. Press upon us the importance of these small steps of faith, of trusting the Lord daily. Press upon us the importance of our need for trust, that we might remember this moment forever, well, not necessarily, but that this moment might become our normal response. We trust your word, we rely upon your grace, and we praise your name. These things we ask for your glory and for our good. We ask and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand and sing with us our song of response, O church, arise.